Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello, 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 and welcome to a very special podcast. I'm here once again with bloody Peter Hart. And I can't get rid of me. The delectable Gary Bain. And today mainly because we don't know anything about the subject we're going to cover, we've got a very special guest. And uh, I'd like to introduce you to Nikolai Eberholst. And Nikolai, because we don't know anything about you either, we thought perhaps you'd like to tell us a bit about yourself. (laughs) A stalwart of the great war group that you are. (laughs) Yeah, uh, my name is Nikolai Eberholst. I am a historian from from Denmark. It's just, just north of Copenhagen. Uh, and my main focus is uh, all the things that nobody else cares about, uh, such as Austria-Hungary, the Eastern Front, um, the Italian Front, oh, all the things. Cast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, you have asked me to come on and talk a bit about the um, Eastern Front in 1914, um, which I think we're going to do, but with a, a little bit more focus on the Austro-Hungarian side. Because that'll be new and different from just endlessly mm. banging on about Tannenberg. Yeah, you can easily get sucked into that wormhole. So, who who who's involved? Uh, so, give us an outline. Who who are the armies on the Eastern Front, and and what are their overall plans? Yeah, of course. I mean, you you of course also have the the German army. Uh, it is not the biggest force there in the beginning of the war. Uh, as we know, the German Schlieffen plan is mainly focusing on on defeating uh, France first before then turning. Uh, it's forced towards Russia, counting on Russia being slow at mobilization. So all the Germans have in the east is one army, the Eighth Army, um, commanded by by uh, a guy called von Prittwitz, uh, and consisting of about four corps with four of these in in East Prussia, about 150,000 troops in in total. Uh, and their their job is simply just to hold off the Russians until France is hopefully defeated, and then to move into Russia with the rest of the German army. Then you have the Austro-Hungarian army, uh, which is the bigger of the two uh, central power armies in the east. And since we're focusing a little more, we need to talk a little bit about how weird and strange this huge army is of this hey, well, massive empire. Because because it is a really weird construct, the Austro-Hungarian army. I mean, I've read your book 
And I was, st- I, it was even more complicated than I thought. Now, just sketch it out for us. Yeah, it, I mean, it's a product of, of a dual state uh, because remember, it is Austria-Hungary. Uh, this has been the case since 1867, uh, when there's a deal with the Hungarians to make like a dual state, which means that both sides are sort of um, autonomous, autonomous um, nations within one empire. So there's one emperor who's the king of. Uh, he's not the emperor of. Um, of Hungary is the king of of uh, Hungary, which will will come back when we talk about what, why the the names of the units are so weird. Uh, so, so the army is, is also very much split up, much like the empire itself. So you have the common army, which is the the army for the whole country, which recruits from everywhere. It's a large army, but then you also have two national armies, and this is one of the requirements of the Hungarians. So you have the Hungarian hundred, the Royal Hungarian hundred royal because he's the king which is a national um hungarian force which is only recruiting people from the hungarian part of the empire and then you have a national army in the austrian part of the empire called the uh, the, the imperial royal landwehr then you also have these other small formations you have for example croatia has a separate deal so they have a home guard i'm not even going to try to pronounce it because it's going to be ho- horrible and then you also have uh, bosnia Bosnia-Herzegovina, which become a part of, of uh, Austria's, uh, Austria-Hungary as well. They have uh, a, a few regiments that are part of the, the common army, but then again, they are also only recruited in their own part and, and have uh, like uh, certain kind of uniforms. For example, they wear fesses, uh, part of uh, the, the Turkish origin of, of, of these units as, as well. Um, and it, it, it is a, it's a strange country, and it is uh, one that also suffers underneath uh, under all these uh, weird things. So they have some funding issues, for example. What, um, what but, funding issues? Yeah, the Hungarians are not very happy about uh, boosting the budget of the main army. Uh, so they, they are happy to, to block increases in the military budget. Uh, the results of this is, of course, that, that uh, as Austria-Hungary grows in population and, and in, in size through the second half of the of the nineteenth century, uh, the army budget doesn't, and the army doesn't really follow uh, with with the, the the empire as a whole. It means that you don't really recruit as many people uh, or conscript as many people as as you you would like. Which means that by the time war comes, you don't really have the reserves that other have because you don't have that many people trained. Um, you also lack modern equipment. You you don't have as much uh, artillery. Artillery is a, a big issue. Austria-Hungary will go to, to war with very outdated artillery, uh, with bronze barrels, with uh, bronze, not steel, because they last longer, so they don't have to replace, be replaced as often. Uh, they are saving on things like uh, um, like recoil systems, uh, you know, the, from... Every every gun, field gun, uh, going into the First World War, uh, every every good gun will have a recoil system, like like the French seventy five, for example. A lot of the Austrian guns won't have that. They will simply just fire, bounce up and down, and then they have to be reset. So you can't really have a, a fast um, bombardment. Then, of course, it's also a multinational army. We have a, we have enough problems dealing with the Scotch and the Durham Light Infantry and the Cornish. Uh, famously, the Cornish accent is impenetrable. Um, uh, but this isn't just accents. This is different languages, isn't it? It is. I mean, it's it's both different different languages. It's also different religions. It's different, uh, you know, eth- ethnicities in, in general. I mean, you have um, 
you have an army that reflects the composition of the uh, of of the population of the empire itself. So you have eleven different languages. Uh, each regiment might have several different languages. Um, you have what called regimental languages, uh, which is the, the the ones that are spoken within a certain regiment. But the overall command language, at least in the common army, is German. In the Hungarian, is Hungarian. Croatian is Croatian, like that. Um, but in in the common common army, you have German. But then the soldiers might speak uh, Czech or Slovak. They might speak Slovenian, Romanian, um, Serbian, something like that. And this is, of course, a, a problem. And and you also have a requirement that, for example, officers who serve in these regiments should talk uh, or should learn and speak the language of the soldiers under their command, which is, of course, a problem. If you're, uh, say, uh, an officer from Germany or, or from the Ger speaking German, not from, from Germany, but from the, the German part of, uh, or nationality, um, you might have to serve in a regiment where people speak uh, a completely different language. You have, will have to learn these languages to command them. It works sort of okay in, in peacetime, but when wartime comes and officers begin to die, the new officers stepping in will not have the time to learn these new languages and there will uh, be enormous problems with languages. But I would echo what Pete said. At least they could learn the language. You could, nobody in the British Army can understand anyone from <laughs> Durham. It's simply not possible Why, to I? learn. <laughs> <laughs> well, talking about that, I mean, that puts it in mind. What are, were all the minority uh, groupings loyal? Uh, because the Austro-Hungarian Empire, was every nation, was every part of it committed or, or were there certain areas that, cause that people have their eye on? Can we entirely yeah. trust those checks, for instance? Yeah, it's, it's one of the, the issues. I mean, there is great concern. Will these minorities like Slavs, like Czechs and Serbs, as you say, of Romanians as well, uh, will they do Bosnians. well? Bosnians, um, although the Bosnians are a little more trusted because they are not very interested in being uh, Serbs. Uh, so, <laughs> so, <laughs> so there's all these intrigues in part. Italians, will they be willing to fight uh, as part of the Austro-Hungarian army if there's a war between Austria-Hungary and Italy? Maybe not. Uh, it turns out that it is perhaps not as much a problem as... Um, as we think, there is post-war literature, like immediately after in the interwar period, that will talk about how big a problem this is. But later research has shown that it's probably not that, that big of a problem. Most people serve loyally throughout. And, and, but the fear that some parts of the army is not loyal uh, makes the, the high command very distrustful of some of its own soldiers. So it sort of becomes a self-fulfilling uh, prophecy in a way. And was it represented in the same way in the senior officers? So, or were the senior officers all from a, a single cadre, mainly, you know, Hungarian, for example? Yeah, I mean, definitely. The um, when we say that that the the army sort of reflects the uh, composition of, of the nationalities of the main of, of the uh, the empire itself, that doesn't really count uh, when you go to the. Um, to the officer corps. It's mainly German and Hungarian. Those are the, the ruling classes in, uh, in there. One interesting thing is that there is a significant amount of Jews uh, in the officer corps in Austria-Hungary, which is not common in almost every other army in Europe at that time, especially in, in the Eastern European armies uh, at the time. 
Um, so, 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 yeah, some of the distrust of the soldiers stem from that as well, of course. Now, now tell me a bit about who, who was in command of the Austro-Hungarian army, because uh, as far as I know, he's quite a... Is it uh, is a character a right word? Anyway, he's a right one. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, his name is uh, Franz Konrad von Petzendorf, um, which is an impressive name. Um, normally, we just uh, refer to him as Konrad, uh, but yeah, he is. Um, he has a long career. He's uh, served in Bosnia Herzegovina during the Austro-Hungarian uh, campaign to occupy this former Ottoman region in 1887. Uh, he served uh, during the insurrection in Dalmatia in 1882. And then from, from that point on, he moves more to a, a teaching uh, role. Uh, he becomes, he's appointed a professor of military tactics at the uh, Kriegsschule in, in Vienna, the war school in Vienna in 1888. And he proves himself a very good teacher. Uh, he's popular with students. And this is a, an important part of the, his story is that he is um, the teacher and the mentor of many of the high officers within the Austro-Hungarian army once the army goes to war. And this explains a lot of the, the authority that he holds within the army and the loyalty that, that these men have towards him, despite, as we will see, some enormous setbacks. Now, um, he, was, uh, he was the prime mover, with, along perhaps with the likes of Foch, of, of the offensive, wasn't it? That the offensive yeah. is all. And, and I mean, that is quite crucial to what's going to happen in 1914. Yeah, I mean, he's a prolific writer on tactics, and he, he's he's also uh, uh, skilled at this and knows a lot of stuff. But of course, it's it's mostly like the things he cares about is the Franco-Prussian War, uh, and he doesn't really have that much experience uh, himself of, of of war as it becomes. And he becomes the uh, chief of general staff in 1906, and he begins to advocate modernization of the army. But of course, the funding won't really allow this. Uh, but he's also um, continuously advocating for preemptive wars against all his neighbors. I mean, all the time, again and again and again, almost every month. Uh, and, and his uh, thought is that internal problems within the empire of all these nationalities uh, and uh, independence movements and all that will be solved by dealing with the external force. So, for example, uh, if the if Serbs within the empire act up, you can deal with that by crushing Serbia. Because what would they do then? They will not advocate being part of a country that isn't there. So, so that's his uh, thinking. It is. Uh, he's also dismissed because of that in 1911. Um, but he's reinstated the following year by the Archduke, uh, Franz Ferdinand, who's killed in 1914. And he is then... Uh, the chief of staff going into to the First World War. But what is important to know is that because he's a teacher of tactics, he's the main man on tactics in the Austro-Hungarian army, he is both the main man on tactics and strategy within the, the Austro-Hungarian army because he's now in this dual role. And it is clear that his strength in the latter strategy is not as great um, when, it, when it comes to this. So what was his plan then, Nikolai? It, it, I mean, it was well known... Uh, the Schlieffen plan was the, the biggest open secret on the planet at the time, and the French had plan 187 to deal with it. So what was what was the uh, the plan for, for Conrad? Yeah, Sorry. so, uh, so Austria-Hungary, of course, have many, many different war plans, depending on where they want to go <laughs> and where they want to, to, to do the thing. The, the problem for Austria-Hungary is they don't have enough armies. They have six armies, uh, field armies, um, 
to upon mobilization, but they don't have enough to face everybody at the same time. So they have to make the choice. Do we want to go after uh, Russia first or do we want to go after Serbia first? Now, Conrad decides to go after Serbia first. He thinks that he can deal Serbia a big, quick blow first and knock them out of the war and then turn to watch Russia second. Little sleep and plan-ish uh, in that regard. So he sends uh, the 5th, 6th and 2nd Army south and the 1st, 4th and 3rd north to face the R Russian. Because remember, when you look at a map, in of Austria-Hungary, they talk about the northern front, and that's Russia. So when we talk about the eastern front, they talk about the northern front. Um, now there now, was is that a lack, because was yeah. that because they just assumed that Russian mobilization was going to be terribly slow? Yes, they, they hope that they can crush Serbia quickly, and then they hope to move everything uh, to, towards um, towards Russia. Um, but of course. As the Germans also learned, the Russians mobilize much, much faster than they think. And there is a real problem with coordination with, with Germany. There, <laughs> there's a hope that from Conrad, at least he claims that uh, later on, that he thinks that the Germans are going to uh, launch an offensive out of East Prussia. But Germany, of course, denies this. And it, it is very unlikely seeing how few troops they actually have there. Uh, so it is probably just a way to sort of cover your own mistakes later on. He's, he's um, deflecting blame there, isn't he? Exactly. Uh, so what actually happens is Conrad yeah. is, is tall. Yeah. Well, what about the Russian? Can we just look at the Russian plans? Uh, uh, or, or is that next? Or the Russian yeah, I mean, yeah, we can do that first. Because um, we ought to see what they're... Because we don't need much, funnily enough, about the Russians, because they're, they're, hmm. they're big. Uh, are they really a steamroller? Yeah, that's the, that's the thing. That's it's the idea that Russia is so big and so large that uh, they can overcome any other shortcomings just by the sheer number of their troops. Um, and they, they have learned something from being defeated disastrously uh, by the Japanese just 10 years before, um, but not enough. And they're, they're, they've not had the time to really uh, modernize enough and carry out these changes, but they are mobilizing faster than everybody thinks. You can think of it as sort of a giant with clay feet. I mean, it, it is it is a, a big army, uh, but it has some significant problems within its officer corps. Um, and and it is, there's this idea that it's slow to mobilize, uh, which also stems from this and, and affects the way that, uh, that Austria, Hungary and Germany, of course, plans their war. Um, but there's still this, this idea that, that, that by... Once they get going, they will be able to crush everything. Uh, and this is something that, that is, is uh, prominent in, in all countries at Versailles at the time. Um, but, but it is a, a, a proper, a, an army with problems of its own. And um, some of those were logistical, weren't they, Nikolai, in the sense that, for example, the railway had a completely different gauge to the rest of Western Europe, although the French were, yes. were trying to do something about that, weren't they? <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're good. There, there are a significant lack of railroads in general in, in that part of the world. And it will be a problem and, and something that the Germans and Austrians can use a little better. Uh, Germans better than the Austrians still, but the Russians have, I, I mean, the, the, the battles in the East becomes a battle about uh, railroad hops uh, here and there. And it becomes extremely important to find and, and, and take these. Um, but it's also an army. It's very important to think of the army as not the army of Russia. It's the army of the Tsar. It's his personal army, and they're doing his bidding. 
And this is very ingrained into the, the uh, minds of the officers. And they all think that this, the soldiers are just pawns doing his bidding. Uh, and this, of course, later on will have drastic consequences uh, for the internal workings of, of, uh, of the Russian army. Now, Russia facing east, uh, well, no, sorry, facing west, uh, because that's the thing. Russia divides its western front, because remember, the eastern front is the western front for Russia. You're going to confuse Gary here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but they divide it into two fronts. They have the northwestern front, commanded by Yakov Selinsky, and then they have the southwestern front, commanded by uh, Nikolai Ivanov. Gary, um, Gary, did you catch that first name? Yeah. <laughs> what was it? <laughs> Im. <laughs> exactly. Sorry. Yeah, and the whole thing is commanded by uh, Grand Duke Nikolai Nikolaevich, which is a now, beautiful name. Is it, he, <laughs> it is very similar to yours. Yeah. Uh, he he um he was it he, but he's just a royal stooge, isn't he? Uh, in many ways, is he the? I can't remember his uncle or cousin or brother. His second yeah, he's cousin. His, he's his his second cousin. Yeah. Twice removed. Yeah, <laughs> and there was nobody more surprised at the appointment than he was. <laughs> <laughs> no, is he but flabbergasted? He, he is. I mean, it, he is a military man, uh, and he is. Uh, he's popular, um, and he's extremely tall, which also shows in oh, photos standing next that's to. That's really to, helpful. Yeah, but but it, but he is a man that many people look up to within the army, and think he's, it's a good Literally. idea that he's appointed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but he is yeah. also a man with very little experience of his own, and he will sh prove to really be. A, a man with some shortcomings here. So let's. Uh, so that. What's the plan? What's the Russian plan of action? Because in a way, the Austrians and the Germans sort of respond in a sense, in some ways. So yeah. what, what are what are the Russians are trying to do? I mean, they're Very, facing with... briefly. It has. We have to keep this brief. You know. Yeah. Sure. Um, uh, the the problem here is that that they are dealing with what is called the Polish salient, which is this. Is that Poland a sticky outfit? It is a sticky outfit. It's think of it almost like a crescent. Uh, with the bow pointing um, west and the points pointing east. Um, so the obvious choice, when looking at it without any knowledge, would be that you just place all your armies at the end of it and just march straight to Berlin from there. But then you're open on the flanks from attacks by Germans from the north and the Austro-Hungarians from the south. So what they need to do is they have to deal with these armies at the points of this crescent. Um, so they deploy uh, to face these these uh, two flanks, which are completely separated. That's also why you're dividing it into two separate fronts. Um, and uh, the Russia decides that the biggest challenge here is Austria-Hungary, because there are much more troops in the east than Germany. So they're sending two armies north, first and second, and then the uh, fourth, fifth, and third, and eighth army against the Austro-Hungarians. Um, so we tend to think a lot about, uh, you know, the war in the East being about the Battle of Tannenberg, but that is actually the secondary battle for, for, now, for I, almost both armies. I can think of nobody better than you to sum up Tannenberg in, in sort of five lines, because uh, oh, oh, I, sorry, Gary, I was going to say <laughs> you, Gary. Oh, oh. <laughs> well, shall we just, I mean, obviously you're the international expert on Tannenberg, Gary, but should we just get Nikolai to sum it up for us? And then you can comment on his summary. Yeah, very I mean, quickly. Tannenberg is, is fascinating. We'll have another podcast, almost certainly with you, about Tannenberg sometime this year. But tell me about T Tannenberg so that I can understand what goes wrong for the Russians. Well, the Russians uh, are, are trying to attack 
Eastern Prussia from two sides. They're trying to attack from the east with the first army under Rennenkampf and from the south by the second army under Samsonov. Their, their um, plan is that first army is going to send the, the Germans running and then second army is going to come from the south and attack the retreating Germans in the flank. Um, there's a, a couple of, of initial clashes, uh, first at Salopinen and then at Gumbinen. Uh, the first is a small clash between the German first corps, which ends in a, in a, in a small German victory, convinces them that maybe they can actually do something and attack in, in force uh, against first army. They do that. It doesn't go as well at Gumbinen. Uh, and the, the, the commander of eighth army, Fritz, runs sort of away. Pan- yeah, he, he panics. He orders uh, a retreat. Um, and that is not very popular, of course, uh, within the German high command. And the uh, chief of the general staff, uh, Molke, he sacks him and replaces him with Hindenburg and Ludendorff, which are names that should be familiar to most. Um, Bastards. Yeah, exactly. They, um, they don't come up with the plan, do they? The plan's ready-made, isn't it? That they. I mean, this is a, this is a big very uh, discussion. Very Don't mention this. This, uh, <laughs> this is where you get in. But there is uh, also a third man, uh, Max Hoffman, who's a, a staff officer, who is also have come up with this plan, maybe. And yeah, this is the, the big wormhole that you can get into on the Eastern Front. But what what is important is that. Um, Renningkampf sends a message now to Second Army saying the Germans are on the run. Uh, and now you can proceed into their flank as a plan. Um, he, at the same time, begins to slow down, and the Germans spot this. So what they do is they set a screen off of just a single division with some artillery to sort of make the impression that there's a much larger force facing First Army while they move all their troops south to... Um, uh, to face the second army, and they let uh, Samsonov march into the center while their corps are going around the sides, and then they sort of shut off his center and surround them and capture uh, nearly a hundred thousand pr- uh, prisoners. So basically, they defeat them in detail. They they yes. isolate the second army and smash it to bits. Yeah, absolutely. A big, a, it's a, a big, big problem victory. for the. It is a big victory, and a big problem uh, for the Russians is is that they are very divided. They're divided by these big, the Masurian lakes, which big lake district. Uh, so there isn't that communication between the two armies in in the same way. Uh, and um, yeah, the second army is completely defeated. Uh, the general Samsonov he goes into the forest and shoots himself. Uh, by the end surprised of it, he, and- it's quite surprised he didn't miss. <laughs> Yeah, you can say that. Uh, and then the Germans, basically what they can do now is they can turn against First Army, which they do, and uh, launch an attack against Renenkampf um, in what will become known as the First Battle of the Masurian Lakes. Now, so that's Tannenberg. But what about what about Serbia? What about Galicia? Go on, come on, come on. What's happening? Yeah, so as we talked about before, Austria-Hungary has, has um, gambled on a, on a quick victory in Serbia before moving in against Russia. But of course, this, this, uh, they also see that Russia is mobilizing much, much faster than, than expected. So Conrad is told by, German, by the Germans and by staff and everybody that, oh, this is not a good idea that you've placed so many troops south uh, against the Serbians. The Russians are coming in full force and you need to get more troops there. So what he does is he, takes, uh, he orders the second army uh, to move east as well, 
But because this goes completely against all pre-war planning, all train schedules and everything, so uh, the second army will have to go to the Serbian front before it can turn back to, to, to the eastern front. What basically ends up happening is that they will only be on the Serbian front uh, for a short time, not enough to secure a victory there and then arrive in Galicia only really to take part in, in that by then almost certain defeat. Now, um, can, you, can you summarize Serbia for us? Because we're not really concentrating on Serbia, are we? But it, this is an amazing story in its own right. This is the thing about it, Gary, isn't it? This is such, we don't, we don't know about these things, but there's huge battles with, with the Serbs. And you could say they're pretty plucky, aren't they? I mean, the, the, the Austro-Hungarians really, they underestimate the Serbs. The Serbs have just been through a series of wars in the Balkans are, and are pretty damn good soldiers who, with a lot of experience. And by moving away troops again to, to the east, they don't even, like the Austrians, don't really have a, a numerical advantage either. So what they do is they, they cross the border onto what is known as the Sea Mountain, uh, probably mispronouncing that one, but... They they are camping on on this when when the when the Serbians attack and they simply simply beat them back and beat them all the way back into Austria uh, and it's a massive defeat. It's a, one of their first uh, victories for 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 the for the Allies or how you want to name them in in the First World War. Now now what's happening in Galicia? Yeah, what, what is about to happen there is this massive meeting engagement because both Conrad and the Russians planning on, on launching an offensive the, the, the Russians into Galicia and Conrad into uh, what is the, the Russian partition of Poland. Um, and, and the result is this massive meeting engagement along an, an enormous front. I mean, this front is, sorry to use um, the wrong measurements in your uh, eyes, but uh, it's more than 400 kilometers long and we're it, it, it's a battle involving 2 million men. Uh, wow. So, so it, it is it's a, a, a battle that will turn out much larger and bloodier than something like the Marne, for example, which is roughly at the same time. Um, yeah, I was going to say, but, just to put this context, this, this is relatively early. This is about the 23rd of August, isn't it? Yes. Uh, the first clash that happens uh, happens with, between the first Austro-Hungarian army uh, and the fourth at a place called Krasnik. Happens on the twenty third, um, and it, it it turns in. It's a bloody Austrian victory. It's a small victory, but it, it is a victory. And you were completely right. Bloody hell! Yeah, I can see that you're with yourself. <laughs> and that that's a lot bigger than Mons, which is what's happening there. And I think yeah, it's that's the same point. day. Yeah, uh, it, it is a victory for Austria-Hungary, but it's a very costly victory. Uh, then you have a clash again uh, on the twenty sixth between the fourth army. Austrian Fourth Army and the Russian Fifth Army at a place called Komarov, and this is an initially also a Russian, uh, or oh, sorry, uh, an Austro-Hungarian victory. But then things start to go very, very wrong for the Austro-Hungarians. Do the wheels um, fall off? Yes. Uh, what is happening at the same time is you have the Third Army. It's commanded by a guy called Rudolf von Brudermann, uh, and he is around this city of Lemberg which is the capital in Galicia. And his job is to secure the flank of these two other attacking armies, await the arrival of the second army, and then protect the city. Um, and he is ordered forward cautiously uh, initially. But what he does, he's very aggressive, and he thinks himself uh, much better than anybody else. And he just launches a full-on offensive east without really knowing what he's going into. Um, 
And there's a, both a failure on his part, but also on the part of the Austro-Hungarian cavalry, who don't really catch anything but a few Cossack patrols east of Lemberg. But what he actually is marching, what will essentially just be about three corps into, is the main Russian strike force consisting of two full armies, the third and the eighth. Yeah, commanded by some of the best Russian generals, uh, Ruski and Brusilov. Brusilov, of course, uh, one of the few Russian generals that people have heard of because of later oh, um, successes. I've heard of him. Yes. Uh, and the two sides... He's class, offensive. Um, That's what I've he heard is, and a very offensive. He's a very offensive general. <laughs> uh, and these two sides uh, clash around this small town called Slochov uh, on the 26th of August. And it's an absolute bloodbath. Um, there is a complete failure. This is, I mean, this is, has already been shown in other parts of Galicia, but but if we sort of zoom in on this battle and see what, what is going on here on the ground, is that the Austro-Hungarian tactics completely fail. I mean, the Austro-Hungarian regiments are attacking headlong against the Russians to dig in along a series of wood-covered hills and along this railroad uh, embankment, embankment, sorry, um, with officers leading the charges and with little to no actual uh, artillery support. And the Russians, on the other hand, plenty of artillery, they have machine guns and they're dug in and they just cut down the hostile okay. guarantee drones. Can and I just say this this sounds very like the, the, the huge massacre of the French and the Battle mm. of the Frontiers on the twenty second of August, which is just a, a few days before. That, that sounds very, very like similar. Uh, but yes. the, the scale of the slaughters appalling, just as it was for the French. Yes, exactly. And we we have a, a quote by a Russian artillery officer. Um, who describes what, what he sees as these uh, Austrians just attack. He's anonymous, isn't he? He's Turn anonymous. our guns upon the enemy, and I give the order to fire. I myself feel that I'm in a kind of a nightmare. One of the enemy's regiments is annihilated, then a second one. All this time, I'm pouring missiles in among them. Yet still the enemy is advancing, rushing forward and lying down in turns. I do not understand his tactics. But what are they to me? It is enough for me that I am occupying a favourable position and mowing him down like a strong man with a scythe in a clover field. Our favourite simile. <laughs> mm, yes. But as you can see, I mean, the, the Austro-Hungarians are really uh, displaying some extreme bravery here. They are attacking across open ground with little to no artillery support. Uh, and the officers are at the front, but they are faced with it with what is it really an impossible task? And we have another quote here by a Slovene soldier of the Imperial and Royal Infantry Regiment Number 87. They have so charming names in, in Austria. <laughs> I will tell you things that you'll think are impossible. Singing and screaming, we went into battle on the 26th of August without support across an open field against a hidden enemy showered with bullets and shrapnel on both flanks. But we went on. The officers, among them the general himself and several majors, themselves with rifles in their hands, they, they were in the front ranks and death had a harvest, a terrible harvest. Yeah, so actually when I first read this, I thought it was maybe a, a bit over the top, to be honest, a, a general being in the front line fighting. And I thought, but then I, then I found another account saying the exact same thing by the neighboring regiment. I thought maybe I should look into this a little bit more. And it, in fact, it's absolutely true. The general in question is uh, Major General Alfred von Hinge. He's the commander of the 55th Infantry Brigade, which is the 87th and 97th Infantry Regiment. 
um, and he was indeed in the front line, in front ranks, uh, before he was seriously wounded. Uh, he's hit <laughs> in the legs. Uh, yeah. Uh, what a surprise that was. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and we have accounts of what happens. I mean, he's hit by, by, by uh, the Russian fire. He's trying to drag himself off the battlefield before he's grabbed by an officer uh, of his staff and a dismounted dragoon and then carried off the battlefield under heavy Russian shrapnel fire. So this is really telling of the, a massive problem facing the Austro-Hungarians in Galicia. The officers perform bravely, but foolhardy, uh, and they're wasted in enormous numbers. I mean, the Austro-Hungarians regiments, they lose 70% of their officers in the first days of battle. Uh, and these are peacetime officers from the peacetime officer corps, well-trained. Uh, they're the ones who know the languages, as we talked about before. Uh, they're the ones who studied for years in some of the most prestigious military academies in, in Europe. And, and, and all this is wasted away, completely years of training in, in a matter of days. And they will not, they, they, I mean, they will be replaced by men who have not received this training at all. They don't have the time for the same education. And, and it, it's just nowhere near comparable. Uh, and the men are suffering just as greatly in Austro-Hungarian regiments in Galicia. They suffer around 50% losses on average. Uh, and some of these on their first day in battle. I mean, for example, it's... Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Switch off where we are now. Uh, the 47th Regiment suffered more than 1,200 casualties on the 26th alone. Um, it's bad. Uh, and to sum it up, we have a, a account by a guy called uh, Octavian Tesloano. He's a Romanian uh, junior officer of the Royal Hungarian 100th Infantry Regiment Number 23. Each unit, as it arrived in Galicia, was hastily thrown into action and the men attacked as at manoeuvres, advancing all together in open formation. 
The Russians, usually entrenched at the edge of a wood, let us approach within three or four hundred paces. And just as we yelled our hurrah for the final assault with the bayonet, they opened fire with rifles and machine guns, which decimated our ranks in a few seconds. The few who survived wandered panic-stricken all over Galicia and soon lost any military identity they ever had. Yeah, I mean, by evening on the 26th, the 3rd Army is forced to retreat. And some regiments like the 97th, for example, are so badly beaten that they, they, they can't even be brought, brought back into any sense of military order before they've reached Lemberg, and that's some 40 kilometers away. Uh, so it, it's, it's a terrible disaster. But Ruderman still launches an attack on the 27th as well. It's carried out by Alpine troops, these famous Kaiserjägers of the uh, 14th Corps. And this is another failure. And it just results in, in some of the best Austro-Hungarian troops being wasted. Uh, and Alpine troops, I mean, mountain troops trained for mountain warfare, they're wasted on some of the flattest country in, <laughs> in Eastern Europe. Um, it's just a disaster. But they set up a new defense line along the Gnilalipa River, just east of Lemberg. Uh, and the Russian reaches on the 28th, and they break through it on the 30th. And now Lemberg is pretty much defenseless, and the city is abandoned for the Russians a few days later. So things are looking really, really, really bad for the Austro-Hungarians now. And Conrad is giving an order not to retreat, but to try and stop uh, defeat from happening. So he orders his third and the remains, let's say it like that, of the third and second armies who's just been beaten to form another defense line uh, just um, west of Lemberg. Um, this will, he hopes, will hold the Russians off while he then takes his fourth army, uh, who, as we remember, have done well at Komarov. They're still pursuing the Russians, but they are now ordered to disengage from their coming, hopeful coming victory, and then march southeast to hit the Russians in the flanks uh, as they clash with the 3rd and 2nd Army. And the result is just another catastrophe for Conrad as his 4th Army stopped at the town of Ravaruska. And this is the bloodiest battle of the Gali on the Galician battlefield. And the ca casualties on both sides are really just enormous. And we have a quote by an Italian soldier, uh, Angelo Paoli, of the Imperial Royal Landeschützen Regiment Number 1, which really sums off up how brutal the fighting really is here. As soon as we were spotted by the enemy, it seemed like the end of the world. Cannon fire, gunshots, the rapid fire shooting and machine guns, the bullets whistling everywhere. The dead and wounded were heaped around, some with no legs, some no arms, those with heads split open, those wounded in the belly who were losing their intestines, intestines as well. The situation was impossible to describe. Little by little, we reached a trench filled with our guys. There we stayed for maybe an hour. In the trench, it was all blood and corpses you didn't know where to step <clears throat> the order came to advance further i made it maybe 300 steps and found a hole dug in the earth i threw myself in it like a dead man i couldn't advance any further i stayed like that around two hours i fired some more shots with my rifle but i couldn't even raise my head after a bit, I heard a voice at my left side. I raised my eyes and saw that there a German from my company, and he told me that all our guys were getting out. He'd no sooner gotten these words out before a bullet cut through his throat. He fell back screaming. I lifted my eyes a bit and saw the Russians about 250 feet from me and firing with full force. I was desperate. I, I didn't know what to do. If I stay here, I told myself, they'll kill me. If I flee, I'm as good as dead. I couldn't even look at that poor fellow they'd shot. 
I gathered what courage I could, lifted myself a bit and wriggled like a snake across the ground. Then I got up and ran and I got into another of our trenches. There the dead and wounded were piling up upon one another. You couldn't even take a step without stepping on them. The wounded yelled, for pity's sake, don't walk on me. The unwounded and the wounded who could stand, all of them fled. When I was in the trench, the bullets were coming from everywhere. I got hit slightly in my left hand and in my thigh. But once I got out of the trench from among, among the half dead and wounded, I set off running like a desperate man. Amid the enemy's gunfire that was coming from every direction, I kept running for an hour and a half without stopping. When I was a little bit away from the danger, I slowed down and from the fatigue I felt after running that course, I said to myself, if I don't die this time, I won't die at all. I bet he did. <laughs> I bet he's not alive now. Okay, well, it's a, it's a terrible quote. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Although it I has mean, been, a, I notice the Americanization of the translation. That you, you do notice. Uh, guys, Gordon, guys. Uh, anyway, so yeah. so what? I mean, this is open warfare. This is murderous business. Uh, yeah. is, is there is there a lot more hand to hand combat than usual? It on, sounds uh, more to my. Yeah, I mean, there is. I mean, it, it. It. I think this is one of the misunderstandings of the war in the East. We have this idea that the Western Front is this. Oh, this is the most awful of anything, and the war in the East is a little quieter, maybe a little calmer. Not, but when you read things like this. You, you understand that this is just, it's terrible. It's, it's an absolute murderous bloodbath going on all the time. Uh, and especially in these massive clashes, uh, this is of course before you have trench warfare really, what you have is some shallow trenches, some places, but, but, but it is fighting in the open and it is a, a kind of fighting where, where soldiers are clashing with each other in the open, fighting with the bayonet. And, and you hear a lot, when you read, for example, uh, metal citations, a lot of them uh, you, know, you know, involve descriptions that, that they have been killed off by bayonet and, and stuff, much more than you think. And we have this idea also that's come in that, oh, this idea of bayonet warfare wasn't really that much on the Western Front as, as maybe previously thought. Well, in, in the East, it, it happens much more because it is uh, really big armies clashing in the open. Uh, in, in charges against each other. Um, and we have a couple of quotes here um, that sort of describe the way this, this will, like the experience of, of being in this kind in quite graphic details. So we have first year as a Slovenian soldier of the Austro-Hungarian army. It seemed to me like we all had our eyes popping out of our heads and that something was burning in them. In front of you, you see a cluster of bayonets and you hear 10 salvos fired into the enemy bunch. Some hesitate, some waver. The cluster breaks, our knives sink into the flesh, blood splatters. In front of you, your comrade falls to the ground. You jump over him, pounding, raging, moaning and screaming. This is not just a noise anymore, it's howling. And in the midst of it, you don't know whether you are, uh, we are winning or losing. Only this unawareness pushes you forward so that you don't move from the spot until you are stabbed. You care for your life less than you do for a cigarette. Only one thought keeps you going, to do as much damage as possible and to kill as many as you can. Yeah, yeah that's very so, graphic. And it is, um, but maybe even more graphic is the next quote by a Hungarian NCO in the Austro-Hungarian army. And longer, Gary. And longer. And, and much longer, longer yes. Yeah. <laughs> Up and at em, boys, I shouted as we turned back in a bayonet charge of the slight incline that now lay in front of us. 
down, shouted a Russian officer just above me as he lunged at me in an attempt to knock my rifle out of my hands. I made a counter thrust and ran my bayonet between his ribs. In the same instant, a bullet struck my right hand in which I was grasping my rifle. The, the, the ball ran along the finger and then passed through the fleshy part of the thumb. But what was worse, it shattered the rifle, separating the barrel from the stock, and driving a sliver of the latter so deep into the flesh at the base of the palm that it hung there, a great piece which I had to pull out with my other hand. I jumped backward without turning my face, but it was too late. One of the dozen Russian soldiers around the officer leapt at me and thrust his long bayonet into the right side of my abdomen. He discharged his rifle also as he lunged, shooting away one of my floating ribs. Oh, I fell backward. The one overpowering sensation that welled up through the cruel pain was that of a great weight hung upon a hook that was pulling down in the wound and dragging me to the earth. Yeah, I could not go. I was held up by something when I wanted to sink farther and farther. I can dimly remember a tall Russian warding off two others who wanted to pounce on me and finish the job their companion had started. One of them got so far as thrusting his bayonet into the socket of my left eye. Fortunately, just close enough to the bone not to touch the eyeball itself. I managed to clutch the blade with my left hand as it, as it was entering the socket, cutting my hand to the bone in the effort. Holding it, I jerked my head to the right and freed myself from the bayonet point. They were so enraged at me for having slain their officer that they stamped on my head and kicked me to the shoulder to add to my already sickening pain. They, sh they surely would have finished me off if another wave of them had not come up, driven forward by their officers with drawn revolvers and forced the group round me to move on in the forward rush. As they left me, my single thought was to fight in defence of my life. <laughs> gave way to a realisation of the pain. I rolled from side to side to try and find some position where I could lie without shrieking from the agony. I reached for my flask and found it empty, nor had, any, nor had I any emergency kit for my seven wounds. Bloody hell. Yes. Yeah. Right. So, right. It's, um, it's, a, it's a terrible, uh, it, it's just a terrible battle, uh, this, this battle of Galicia. Um, and, and accounts are sadly plentiful of this kind. Um, but of course, with the, everything going wrong, this also goes wrong. And um, um, soon you, you have Fourth Army, the Austro-Hungarian Fourth Army falling back. The Fifth Army is now moving in, threatening its flank. Uh, Conrad sees that there's a failure at the Rauruska battle. In fact, he also loses a son in this battle. Um, and um, meanwhile, on the left and flank of the uh, of the battle the russians are moving in another army the ninth uh, to to aid the fourth army uh, fighting against the austro-hungarian first army and conrad is really left with no other choice than to order a general retreat first to the san river and then to the carpathian mountains and what what is he's leaving behind is a battlefield that, that or a battle that has cost the austro-hungarians some four hundred thousand casualties and the russians some three hundred thousand so if you want to think about this now, this is roughly the same number as casualties in total at the Battle of the Don, yet this battle lasts about 18 days. So it's an it's just a, an enormous uh, waste of life. And just to give some context to that retreat to the Carpathians, that's that's over 150 kilometers, isn't it? Yeah, and it has to be covered uh, by route, uh, by, by walking uh, through, for, by troops who've been in combat for, for weeks and with very little 
uh, support for them. Um, to cover this retreat, when they get to the sand, they are forced to to uh, to leave a garrison at the, the fortress of Shemish, uh, which is this impronounceable name, P-R-S-E-M-Y-S-L. Um, exactly. Um, uh, they are forced to leave about 130,000 men at this fortress to cover the retreat, and they will soon be surrounded by, by the Russians as well. Um, and although there's a break, yeah. that's the longest siege in the in the uh, the Great War, isn't it? <clears throat> Something like 130 days. I think there's actually one when you look at it in in Africa that is quite uh, that's a, a bit longer. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's always yeah. one. Yeah, I know. Uh, but it is. is it is the one uh, the longest in, in in Europe at the time and one of the largest sieges. Um, but uh, but in this period, you have so many troops moving through the, the country. Uh, we have a quote here by a Czech cavalryman uh, who's, who's describing what he sees when he, he makes his way through uh, Schoenisch. 16th of September, leaving Vistacic, we soon arrived in Chemnitz, which had changed beyond recognition. Everywhere was crowded with troops. We put the horses in the orchard but they were already empty and we went to visit familiar places in the hope that we could buy some things. We were disappointed at, at every bakery shop stood crowds longing for bread. It was not possible to buy bread in the whole city. All flour has been bought by the military warehouses, a small loaf of bread valued at two or three crowns. We were looking for our command, streets full of cannons, cars, etc. Large villages around the city burned to the ground, trees cut down and burned. Embankments and fortified trenches are made everywhere. To do this, gates, fences from houses, demolished churches and beams are used for the embankments. The whole area changed beyond recognition. Multiple wire fences everywhere. Now I saw the enormous work and effort required to fortify the city, and I was not surprised by the order of Richekas, which read, Persevere to the last man. It was known that the retreat would be rapid and that the fortification of Chimil would require more days of work, so it was necessary to persevere. Yes. Yeah. I mean, this is... If, it, talks, it leads to... to the thing that this is uh, impacting this area a lot already. Um, and soon, just a few days later, on the 24th of September, the Russians besiege the fortress. Um, first, there are some attempts at attack, but the Russians really don't have the artillery, the heavy artillery, to make it past the um, outer ring of forts. They just settle down to it. Uh, and that leads us to very much to the next step of the war in the east. Uh, now, the, now, the, the next bit... The next bit is not only ferociously complicated, but we're going to have to go through it quickly because it, it partly because no matter how much you simplified, mm. it's still almost you can't understand it. So we'll leave it to the expert. Could you describe the battles for the Polish aliens and the battle for Warsaw uh, as quickly as you can? And, and I know that's a difficult task. Yeah, I mean, we are talking about a, a series of enormous battles uh, that are happening yeah. all over the place. And and as these two initial battles at Tannenberg and Galicia fought and, and done with, uh, fighting really concentrated around this policy, which is so far been left more or less alone. Um, the Austro-Hungarians are trying to you know uh, recover in the Carpathians, Germans, um, 
fear that they are, their allies are collapsing and the Russians want to make another move into um, into uh, um, Silesia. Uh, and the, the first real clash here is the Battle of Warsaw. And the German plan here is in a, an attempt to uh, attack and take Warsaw, the capital of Poland. Um, they can do so because by now their, their troops have been moved from the Western Front and they can form up the Ninth Army. So now they have two armies in the in the East, plus some other small formations and, and, and groups and so on. Um, so they launch an attack along the Vistula River towards Warsaw, supported by troops of the Austro-Hungarian First Army. And it's initially successful, but uh, they encounter heavy Russian resistance south of Warsaw and are forced back on the 20th of October. Uh, but at the same time, the Austro-Hungarians are taking advantage of this uh, distractions of, of, of the, the Russians and are launching another offensive of their own from the Carpathians to the Sand River. Uh, this is where Shemis is located uh, in, a, in an attempt to relieve the, um, the, the, the siege fortress and sort of push the Russians away and out of Galicia again. Um, and they do succeed somewhat in the beginning because the Russians are exhausted well because of the, the Germans are fighting around Warsaw. Uh, Third Army, now uh, no longer commanded by uh, Bruderman, who has been sacked, uh, taken over by General Borievich, um, who will some people might also know uh, for his uh, very successful defensive battles along the Isonza River later on. But he managed to relieve uh, Prashemis. Um, but then the offensive really much pretty much bogs down along the sand river and it all just turns into mud and 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 nothing and, and they can't really go any further. We have a few quotes uh, just to describe what's happening here. First by by uh, an Austrian uh, NCO of the Kaiser Jäger Regiment who is described yeah. what happens after he's wounded by a, by a Russian yeah. bullet. I'm Karl Treitners and uh, and this is what I say. <laughs> wum, 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 wum. Six grenades hit round me. The next maybe ten pa paces in front of me. When the dust of the earth has disappeared, I see Hoffel jumping out of the small woods near Cole. I greet Hoffel with a wave and he's already at my side. He kneels on the ground, cries and wants also to die. He can't help me anymore. I feel warm blood running all over my body. My whole left foot hurt terribly. Awful, go get up and stay with your people. He does, shakes my hand goodbye and falls to the ground next to me, hit my two bullets with a half loud scream. A hunter saw Hoffel fall and jumped over. At the penultimate jump to us, he fell dead next to Hoffel. The camaraderie knows no bands, no forbearance, and two other hunters run over to help. I yell at them in a rude voice. In such a situation, no one could take it amiss. See to it that you get back. Can't you hear that we're, we're lying in non-stop machine gun fire? They obey me and crawl back to the skirmish line. Now, I find that uh, difficult to read because it's all over the place. Uh, but that perhaps gives an idea of the, the sort of chaotic nature of, of what's going on. Um, it, it does, but it also tells a lot about it. I think we have this idea as well that, uh, about camaraderie that is... is perhaps not as strong in the Austro-Hungarian army, but it, it, it is also strong uh, amongst these, these troops. Um, uh, and I think it's a very human account, uh, the, the, the interaction between him and his comrades uh, trying to help him. Um, but yeah, the offensive is just uh, boxed down and, and it's just a quite modern water. And what you had then is, is, uh, is just terrible conditions for the, for the troops. Here we have, again, the Romanian uh, officer, um, uh, Royal Hungarian Honved Infantry Regiment Number 23, Octavian Ooh, fine Tesla. Volume, 
By day, we were under observation and were unable to leave the trenches. Kitchens arrived in the darkness from Shrove. The men at the chateau took their supply in kettles, but in the trenches, we had to distribute it in the usual way. It was rice, soup and meat. The distribution was the most difficult thing imaginable. First of all, in the darkness, each company tried to get more than its share. (laughs) The men, haggard from hunger, threw themselves on the food and fought with each other other over it until they upset it. The less fastidious flung themselves on the ground and, gathering up the rice, ate it in spite of the dirt. It was impossible to keep order, even though the officers themselves endeavoured to do so with drawn swords. We had not the heart to be brutal with half-starved men on whom neither commands nor blows had any effect. They tore at the bread and snatched spoonfuls of the soup. Meanwhile, the trenches were rapidly becoming indescribably filthy. Each time that the wind changed, it carried to us whiffs of uh, fetid air. The men were unable to leave them. One day, a sniper had killed four of them who had managed to scramble over the parapet into a ditch near the trenches. Great numbers of the men were suffering from dysentery, and even cholera had begun to make its appearance. We had had several deaths from it. Water was a most precious item. They used to bring us some at night from the river or the wells at the chateau. At daytime, we almost perished with thirst. I proposed to the Commandant that we should send engineers to cover in the trenches. Up to the present, the weather had been dry, but rain might come any day. Roofless and flooded trenches would just about finish the regiment. Without pausing to think, the Commandant informed me that if it rained, the men could stay in the water until they drowned. I held my tongue. This is all giving us a great picture, but do, do, do the do the Austro-Hungarians manage to hold the, the San River line? Then I mean, uh, is Przemysl or however you want to pronounce it, is it is it relieved? No, it's relieved for a couple of days, but uh, the, yeah, the of course they can't hold. Um, once once the Germans um, are, are done at the, at Warsaw, the Russians can move in troops. Uh, they can just push them back and, and the, the Austro-Hungarians are again forced back to the Carpathians again leaving uh, Schemis to be besieged on the 10th of November and again they have to leave around 100,000 troops to cover the retreat so that it didn't really do much in, in, the, in the end uh, and what it actually does is that because all these armies uh, move in they manage to uh, more or less empty the, uh, the um, warehouses of food and ammunition uh, and stuff so the, it, the, the garrison is an even worse state um when 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 the um when they leave again do they leave so the same the garrison thing? do they leave uh, the same garrison more, or do they swap them over more more or less some of them get get out and some of them are replaced but a lot of them are, are some of the same units yeah. lucky garrison they were called mm. you would you would never have complained though gary no never no now, uh, so what happens next? So uh, the, the, the fortress town's back, uh, back, back, back uh, besieged. So what's the next battle? Because yeah, there's I battles mean, here, there, and every bloody where, aren't it, it, is, it is a constant move, movement around this, uh, this, this crescent, that we, as we called it before the Polish salient, of, of just trying to make something happen. Uh, the Russians are now trying to, to make something happen. They want to launch an offensive out of um, the Polish salient. Um Remember, they haven't really been able to do that before. Now they, they have uh, mobilized more troops and they try to make uh, a, a move. The Germans figure out that this might happen. So they, what they do is they move their Ninth Army, uh, now under the command of the very capable uh, General Albert von Mackensen. They move that north 
uh, to around Lourdes. Yeah. Uh, Peter's happy because his Facebook profile picture is the general like himself. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, um, but they moved that north to try and make a counteroffensive uh, to sort of disrupt this Russian plan. What happens is this really, really messy meeting engagement of completely weird. This, uh, the, the German... this, is, this is the point where I'm always tempted to say, could you explain in detail what happened? Hmm. Well, <laughs> but... in... No, we are luckily sake. running out of time. <laughs> could you go uh, so through it? Is it like a Neapolitan <laughs> ice cream? Yeah, new politics and ice cream, so <laughs> different layers. Right, so, so, so uh, well, well, it, what it, yeah. who wins? Well, uh, uh, nobody really. Uh, the Germans are trying to see if they can make another tenant that happen. They are trying to launch an attack from the north towards the city of Lodz, uh, while, while the Germans launch, uh, sorry, the Russians launch their own offensive in the, in, in the south of that. Uh, and what happens is a lot of moving back and forth, trying to outmaneuver each other. At one point, both armies are almost in, cut off uh, and, and, and taken prisoner in, in total. But in the end, it, nothing really happens. The Germans can't really force another Tannenberg. Uh, the, the, the Russians can't launch an offensive. Uh, they, the Germans do take the city of Lutz, but, but in the end, it is more or less an inconclusive battle the, with, with nobody really accomplishing what they actually wanted. But it's not just soldiers that are affected, is it? It's not an empty battlefield, it's is it? It's not an Gary? empty battlefield, no. No, no. I mean, you you have uh, I, I, when you have a, a, such a mobile um, front as, as this, you are of course coming into conflict with a lot of civilians, and civilians are heavily affected uh, on the in the east much more than you see in the west. Even though you of course have some in the initial Belgium and, and so on, but in the east, it's a constant thing uh, going on. Uh, uh, at the so, what's happening? Are they forced out of their homes? Is that? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's uh, tons of refugees everywhere. There, there, of course, also um, uh, with that, with that much contact with with civilians, there's a lot of fear of spying. Uh, I mean, there, there's a, lot, a large Jewish population who the the Russians especially don't really like uh, that much. Who sort of gets punished whenever the Russians are there. They, they're moving back and forward, and there's a lot of killing going on as well of civilians. Um, this happens everywhere, from from East Prussia to Galicia, by um, both sides. By both sides, or, um, or rather, all sides. By all sides. I mean, and a lot of it is the same things we see in, in the West in, in Belgium. It, it's uh, misunderstandings, uh, soldiers shooting too quickly, the people being killed out of hand, being suspected of no time for court martials. Uh, but but it, it is a terrible killing, and and the Austrian gangs are, are perhaps is especially hard on on some some of their their um, own subjects that they don't really trust uh, trust too much uh, because they're facing the Russians, um, and they do uh, in fact they, they they do in fact have the same problem in Serbia, uh, where they also uh, carry out a lot of uh, atrocities and. By by the end of the year, the Austro-Hungarians are forced to even call up even more hangmen because they're running out. That that's how bad this is. Now, now th that's a good job you mentioned, sir, because uh, as we talked about the first offensive, but there's two more offensives. Uh, the, the, uh, this is all going mm. on in the backdrop. I mean, these in themselves are fascinating battles, but we've got no time for them. So, mm. what are the the the, the, the last battles of 1914 coming up? Uh, very quickly summarize yeah. these for us. I mean, it, it, it is um, with uh, the Ninth Army, the German Ninth Army, having moving north north to Lutz, um, they sort of leave the Russian, uh, the Austro-Hungarians 
um, flank open around the city of Krakow. And the Russians try one last time to see if they can take this, which is seen as like, like the door to, to Galicia, to Hungary, to everything in there, because it's a railway hub again. Um, but but uh, the, the Austro-Hungarians actually, they predict this happening and they send out the forces that manage to beat the Russian attack back. And then it sort of just blocks down into, into winter and terrible winter conditions, uh, snow and fall. But it is the battle which becomes known as the Battle of uh, Limanova. It is the first actual real victory of the Austro-Hungarians on, on the Eastern Front. Um, and perhaps you could call it the first real significant victory of, of the war for them uh, in December 1914. The rest have been terrible, terrible defeats. Now, um, one of the most interesting things for, for, for me about the, 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 and we have to switch briefly the German army, is that gradually the, the, there's two views, two strategic views the Germans hold. There's one, the Ludendorff-Lindenburg, that they can secure a victory in the East mm. against the Russians. And then there's the sensible view of Falkenhayn, which is that basically informed by things like the retreat to Moscow, is that there are so many Russian bloody troops and that Russia is so big that you cannot secure a decisive victory. Uh, and again, it's uh, uh, and this is uh, this is going to set up a lot of what happens in 1915 and the strategic uh, differences in the German high mm. command. But where are the Austro-Hungarians in this? Because are they buggered now? To use the Gary's for they are buggered. Uh, I mean, if, if, they they have had pretty much only terrible results. Uh, they have had extremely high losses, uh, and they're really. Uh, I mean, when you talk about Austria-Hungary in, in 1914, you, you're talking towards a million casualties, uh, and it's only a few months. Um, the Russians have suffered uh, about around the same, uh, if, if not a little more, but of course they're much larger. They have, they have more people to, to draw from, they have more resources. The Austro-Hungarians, as we have heard in the beginning of this podcast, they don't have the reserves, so they are really desperate to, to try to fill the ranks of this army that's just uh, very quickly running out of men. So they lower the recruitment age, uh, they raise it in the other end, they, um, uh, the, the conscription age, sorry, and they, they lower the time it takes for basic training all the way down to uh, like around two weeks uh, at that point. You just have to send more troops because you don't have reserves, you don't have trained men. All of those have gone. I mean, if you remember, the Austro-Hungarian army before the war the standing army was 450,000 men. Now they lose 400,000 in Galicia. That's almost the entire standing army that's lost within the first two weeks. And then they lose, you know, then they lose some in Serbia and as well. You, you just lost and, and all the rest is just uh, whatever you have reserved in Landwehr and uh, Landsturm units and, and so on, but you don't have uh, any more troops. So you see you're in serious trouble and you don't have artillery, you don't have uh, rifles. Rifles become a massive issue for Austria-Hungary and they have to pull in stuff like old single-shot black powder rifles from the 1860s. Um, I mean, Austria-Hungary loses a million rifles in 1914, a million. And that is a time where they can produce 140,000 a month only. So, so fundamentally, they're not, they're, they've not only suffered all these casualties, but mm. the replacements are far worse. So the army yes. is getting worse and worse mm. and worse. And just to finish, is it, is it a lovely mild winter as they, as they are in the Carpathian Mountains? Is it, you know, lovely? Uh, are they able to have a nice time? 
far from it. Uh, the Carpathian winter is, is terrible. Uh, it is a horrible winter, and and going into fifteen, you will have uh, more battles being fought under terrible conditions. But but I mean, we talk about we talk about horrible winter conditions in nineteen fourteen uh, on the Western Front, in the East. As everything in the East, when it comes to winter, it's just worse. Uh, yeah. And and I mean, it's, it's indescribably bad. And you have continuous casualties uh, from disease. You, you heard the, the, the guy talk about before cholera is spreading fast. It also uh, arrives with as troops are moving around it, it, it arrives on the Serbian front. It actually does a lot of damage to the Serbian army in, in the end of 1914 uh, into 15. Um, but, but yeah, it's a ter- terrible conditions for both sides and they lose terrible casualties. Now, the, the performance of the Austro-Hungarian army uh, on the Eastern Front, is that... Uh, uh, that that results in the Germans having to give it more attention, and and whilst he may never have said this, there's a quote widely attributed to uh, Eric uh, von uh, Ludendorff, isn't there? That uh, Germany mm. was shackled to a corpse. Do you think this yeah. was the start of that sort of sentiment? I think it, it, it was almost that a little before the war, uh, in a way, because, because the Germans have seen that there was a serious issues in this. In this, uh, but, but yeah, you, 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 there is a more and more a, a German sentiment that they have to help the Austrian Hungarian. Remember, Austria Hungary at this point is, is Germany's only ally. Well, you have Turkey coming in in the end, um, but but it is still the most important ally. And if if you think about it, you, you, we we tend to think of Austria Hungary as, as sort of a small sideshow, but you Austria Hungary is taking up a lot of of part of the front that the Germans don't have to cover. They're inflicting hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of casualties on the Russians that the Germans don't have to, allowing the Germans to be uh, more engaged in the West than in the East. Uh, so so I, I don't think it's always fair to say that it is a shackle to a corpse like that. Um, the only reason I raised it is because I know how, how the Germans felt, don't I, Pete? Being shackled to me. Yes, right. <laughs> now, I'd, I, I, on that high note from Gary, I'd like to, to say thank you to, to Nikolai. It's been it's been educational. It's been a and uh, we often say we're not experts on things, but on this one, we're we're not even beginners. We can't even say the words of the places. Yeah, uh, but I'd like to mention that the, the one thing you can do is the Great War Group have a series of introductory uh, uh, books, and one of them is on Austria-Hungary uh, by by Nikolai, and uh, I thoroughly recommend it. You, uh, we will put a link up so you can buy it from uh, from the Great War Group. And thank you very much for coming on board, and thank you for putting up with our incompetence and inability to pronounce anything. Right. <laughs> Cheers, Nikolai. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to support us, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblah
You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?